BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 9 The God of the Gongs It was one of those chilly and empty afternoons in early winter, when the daylight is silver rather than gold, and pewter rather than silver. If it was dreary in a hundred bleak offices and yawning drawing-rooms, it was drearier still along the edges of the flat Essex coast where the monotony was the more inhuman for being broken at very long intervals by a lamp-post that looked less civilised than a tree, or a tree that looked more ugly than a lamp-post. A light fall of snow had half melted into a few strips, also looking leaden rather than silver, when it had been fixed again by the seal of frost. No fresh snow had fallen, but a ribbon of the old snow ran along the very margin of the coast, so as to parallel the pale ribbon of the foam. The line of the sea looked frozen in the very vividness of its violet blue, like the vein of a frozen finger. For miles and miles, forward and back, there was no breathing soul, save two pedestrians, walking at a brisk pace, though one had much longer legs and took much longer strides than the other. It did not seem a very appropriate place or time for a holiday, but Father Brown had few holidays, and had to take them when he could, and he always preferred, if possible, to take them in company with his old friend Flambeau, ex-criminal and ex-detective. The priest had a fancy for visiting his old parish at Cobhole, and was going north-eastward along the coast. After walking a mile or two farther, they found that the shore was beginning to be formally embanked, so as to form something like a parade. The ugly lamp-posts became less few and far between, and more ornamental, though quite equally ugly. Half a mile farther on, Father Brown was puzzled, first by little labyrinths of flowerless flower-pots, covered with the low, flat, quiet-coloured plants that looked less like a garden than a tessellated pavement, between weak curly paths studded with seats with curly backs. 
he faintly sniffed the atmosphere of a certain sort of seaside town that he did not specially care about, and, looking ahead along the parade by the sea, he saw something that put the matter beyond a doubt. In the grey distance the big bandstand of a watering-place stood up like a giant mushroom with six legs. "'I suppose,' said Father Brown, turning up his coat-collar and drawing a woollen scarf rather closer round his neck, that we are approaching a pleasure resort. "'I fear,' answered Flambeau, "'a pleasure resort to which few people just now have the pleasure of resorting. "'They try to revive these places in the winter, but it never succeeds, except with Brighton and the old ones. "'This must be Seawood, I think. "'Lord Pooley's experiment.' He had the Sicilian singers down at Christmas, and there's talk about holding one of the great glove-fights here. But they'll have to chuck the rotten place into the sea. It's as dreary as a lost railway carriage. They had come under the big bandstand, and the priest was looking up at it with a curiosity that had something rather odd about it, his head a little on one side, like a bird's. It was the conventional, rather tawdry kind of erection for its purpose— a flattened dome or canopy gilt here and there, and lifted on six slender pillars of painted wood, the whole being raised about five feet above the parade on a round wooden platform like a drum. But there was something fantastic about the snow combined with something artificial about the gold that haunted Flambeau as well as his friend, with some association he could not capture, but which he knew was at once artistic and alien. "'I've got it,' he said at last. "'It's Japanese. "'It's like those fanciful Japanese prints "'where the snow on the mountain looks like sugar "'and the gilt on the pagodas is like gilt on gingerbread. "'It looks just like a little pagan temple.' "'Yes,' said Father Brown. "'Let's have a look at the god.' "'And, with an agility hardly to be expected from him, "'he hopped up onto the raised platform. "'Oh, very well,' said Flambeau, laughing and the next instant his own towering figure was visible on that quaint elevation. Slight as was the difference of height, it gave in those level wastes a sense of seeing yet farther and farther across land and sea. Inland the little wintry gardens faded into a confused grey copse. Beyond that, in the distance, were long low barns of a lonely farmhouse, and beyond that nothing but the long East Anglian plains. Seawards, there was no sail or sign of life save a few seagulls, and even they looked like the last snowflakes and seemed to float rather than fly. Flambeau turned abruptly at an exclamation behind him. It seemed to come from lower down than might have been expected, and to be addressed to his heels rather than his head. He instantly held out his hand, but he could hardly help laughing at what he saw. For some reason or other the platform had given way under Father Brown, and the unfortunate little man had dropped through to the level of the parade. He was just tall enough, or short enough, for his head alone to stick out of the hole in the broken wood, looking like St. John the Baptist's head on a charger. The face wore a disconcerted expression, as did perhaps that of St. John the Baptist. In a moment he began to laugh a little. "'This wood must be rotten,' said Flambeau. "'Though it seems odd it should bear me, and you go through the weak place. Let me help you out.' But the little priest was looking rather curiously at the corners and edges of the wood alleged to be rotten, and there was a sort of trouble on his brow. 
"'Come along,' cried Flambeau impatiently, still with his big brown hand extended. "'Don't you want to get out?' The priest was holding a splinter of the broken wood between his finger and thumb, and did not immediately reply. At last he said thoughtfully, "'Want to get out? Why, no, I rather think I want to get in.' And he dived into the darkness under the wooden floor so abruptly as to knock off his big curved clerical hat and leave it lying on the boards above without any clerical head in it. Flambeau looked once more inland and out to sea, and once more could see nothing but seas as wintry as the snow, and snows as level as the sea. There came a scurrying noise behind him, and the little priest came scrambling out of the hole faster than he had fallen in. His face was no longer disconcerted, but rather resolute, and, perhaps only through the reflections of the snow, a trifle paler than usual. "'Well,' asked his tall friend, "'have you found the gold of the temple?' "'No,' answered Father Brown. "'I have found what was sometimes more important, the sacrifice.' "'What the devil do you mean?' cried Flambeau, quite alarmed. Father Brown did not answer. He was staring with a knot in his forehead at the landscape, and he suddenly pointed at it. "'What's that house over there?' he asked. Following his finger, Flambeau saw for the first time the corners of a building nearer than the farmhouse, but screened for the most part with a fringe of trees. It was not a large building, and stood well back from the shore, but a glint of ornament on it suggested that it was part of the same watering-place scheme of decoration as the bandstand, the little gardens, and the curly-backed iron seats. Father Brown jumped off the bandstand, his friend following, and as they walked in the direction indicated, the trees fell away to right and left, and they saw a small, rather flashy hotel, such as is common in resorts. The hotel of the saloon bar, rather than the bar parlour. Almost the whole frontage was of gilt plaster and figured glass, and between that grey seascape and the grey witch-like trees, its gimcrack quality had something spectral in its melancholy. They both felt vaguely that if any food or drink were offered at such a hostelry, it would be the pasteboard ham and the empty mug of the pantomime. In this, however, they were not altogether confirmed. As they drew nearer and nearer to the place, they saw in front of the buffet, which was apparently closed, one of the iron garden seats with curly backs that had adorned the gardens, but much longer, running almost the whole length of the frontage. Presumably it was placed so that visitors might sit there and look at the sea, but one hardly expected to find anyone doing it in such weather. Nevertheless, just in front of the extreme end of the iron seat stood a small round restaurant table, and on this stood a small bottle of Chablis and a plate of almonds and raisins. Behind the table, and on the seat, sat a dark-haired young man, bareheaded, and gazing at the sea in a state of almost astonishing immobility. But though he might have been a waxwork, when they were within four yards of him, he jumped up like a jack-in-the-box, when they came within three, and said in a differential, though not undignified, manner, "'Will you step inside, gentlemen? I have no staff at present, but I can get you anything simple myself.' "'Much obliged,' said Flambeau. "'So you're the proprietor?' "'Yes,' said the dark man, dropping back a little into his motionless manner. My waiters were all Italians, you see, and I thought it only fair they should see their countryman beat the black, if he really can do it. 
You know, the great fight between Malvoli and Nigger Ned is coming off, after all. I'm afraid we can't wait to trouble your hospitality seriously, said Father Brown. But my friend would be glad of a glass of sherry, I'm sure, to keep out the cold and drink success to the Latin champion. Flambeau did not understand the sherry, but he did not object to it in the least. He could only say amiably, Oh, thank you very much. Sherry, sir, certainly, said their host, turning to his hostel. Excuse me if I detain you a few minutes. As I told you, I have no staff. And he went towards the black window of his shuttered and unlighted inn. Oh, it really doesn't matter, began Flambeau, but the man turned to reassure him. I have the keys, he said. I could find my way in the dark. I didn't mean, began Father Brown. He was interrupted by a bellowing human voice that came out of the bowels of the uninhabited hotel. It thundered some foreign name loudly but inaudibly, and the hotel proprietor moved more sharply towards it than he had done for Flambeau Sherry. As instant evidence proved, the proprietor had told, then and after, nothing but the literal truth. But both Flambeau and Father Brown have often confessed that, in all their often outrageous adventures, nothing had so chilled their blood as that voice of an ogre, sounding suddenly out of a silent and empty inn. Ah, uh, my cook, cried the proprietor hastily. I had forgotten my cook. He will be starting presently. Sherry, sir? And, sure enough, there appeared in the doorway a big white bulk with white cap and white apron as befits a cook, but with the needless emphasis of a black face. Flambeau had often heard that Negroes made good cooks, but somehow something in the contrast of colour and caste increased his surprise that the hotel proprietor should answer the call of the cook, and not the cook, the call of the proprietor. But he reflected that head cooks are proverbially arrogant, and, besides, the host had come back with the sherry, and that was the great thing. "'I rather wonder,' said Father Brown, "'that there are so few people about the beach when the big fight is coming on after all. We only met one man for miles.' The hotel proprietor shrugged his shoulders. "'They come from the other end of town, you see, from the station three miles from here. They are only interested in the sport, and will stop in hotels for the night only.' After all, it is hardly weather for basking on the shore. Or on the seat, said Flambeau, and pointed to the little table. I have to keep a lookout, said the man with the motionless face. He was a quiet, well-featured fellow, rather sallow. His dark clothes had nothing distinctive about them, except that his black necktie was worn rather high, like a stock, and secured by a gold pin with some grotesque head on it. Nor was there anything notable in his face, except something that was probably a mere nervous trick, a habit of opening one eye more narrowly than the other, giving the impression that the other was larger, or was perhaps artificial. The silence that ensued was broken by their host, saying quietly, "'Whereabouts did you meet the one man on your march?' "'Curiously enough,' answered the priest, "'close by here, just by that bandstand.' Flambeau, who had sat on the long iron seat to finish his sherry, put it down and rose to his feet, staring at his friend in amazement. He opened his mouth to speak, and then shut it again. Curious, said the dark-haired man thoughtfully. What was he like? It was rather dark when I saw him, began Father Brown, but he was... As has been said, the hotel-keeper can be proved to have told the precise truth. His phrase that the cook was starting presently was fulfilled to the letter. 
for the cook came out, pulling his gloves on even as they spoke. But he was a very different figure from the confused mass of white and black that had appeared for an instant in the doorway. He was buttoned and buckled up to his bursting eyeballs in the most brilliant fashion. A tall black hat was tilted on his broad black head, a hat of the sort that the French wit has compared to eight mirrors. But somehow the black man was like the black hat. He also was black, and yet his glossy skin flung back the light at eight angles or more. It is needless to say that he wore white spats and a white slip inside his waistcoat. The red flower stood up in his buttonhole aggressively, as if it had suddenly grown there. And in the way he carried his cane in one hand and his cigar in the other, there was a certain attitude, an attitude we must always remember when we talk of racial prejudices, something innocent and insolent, the cakewalk. Sometimes, said Flambeau, looking after him, I'm not surprised that they lynch them. I am never surprised, said Father Brown, at any work of hell, but as I was saying, he resumed, as the negro, still ostentatiously pulling on his yellow gloves, betook himself briskly towards the watering-place, a queer musical figure against that grey and frosty scene. As I was saying, I couldn't describe the man very minutely, but he had a flourish and old-fashioned whiskers and mustachios, dark or dyed, as in the pictures of foreign financiers. Round his neck was wrapped a long purple scarf that thrashed out in the wind as he walked. It was fixed at the throat rather in the way that nurses fixed children's comforters with a safety pin. Only this, added the priest, gazing placidly out to sea, was not a safety pin. The man sitting on the long iron bench was also gazing placidly out to sea. Now he was once more in repose. Flambeau felt quite certain that one of his eyes was naturally larger than the other. Both were now well opened, and he could almost fancy the left eye grew larger as he gazed. It was a very long gold pin, and had the carved head of a monkey or some such thing, continued the cleric, and it was fixed in a rather odd way. He wore pince-nez and a broad black... The motionless man continued to gaze at the sea, and the eyes in his head might have belonged to two different men. Then he made a movement of blinding swiftness. Father Brown had his back to him, and in that flash might have fallen dead on his face. Flambeau had no weapon, but his large brown hands were resting on the edge of the long iron seat. His shoulders abruptly altered their shape, and he heaved the whole huge thing high over his head like a headsman's axe, about to fall. The mere height of the thing, as he held it vertical, looked like a long iron ladder by which he was inviting men to climb towards the stars. But the long shadow in the level evening light looked like a giant brandishing the Eiffel Tower. It was the shock of that shadow, before the shock of the iron crash, that made the stranger quail and dodge, and then dart into his inn, leaving the flat and shining dagger he had dropped exactly where it had fallen. "'We must get away from here instantly,' cried Flambeau, fleeing the huge seat away with furious indifference on the beach. He caught the little priest by the elbow, and ran him down a grey perspective of barren back garden, at the end of which there was a closed back garden door. Flambeau bent over it an instant in a violent silence, and then said, "'The door is locked.' As he spoke, a black feather from one of the ornamental firs fell, brushing the rim of his hat. It startled him more than the small and distant detonation that had come just before. 
Then came another distant detonation, and the door he was trying to open shook under the bullet buried in it. Flambeau's shoulders again filled out and altered suddenly. Three hinges and a lock burst at the same instant, and he went out into the empty path behind, carrying the great garden door with him, as Samson carried the gates of Gaza. Then he flung the garden gate over the garden wall, just as a third shot picked up a spurt of snow and dust behind his heel. Without ceremony he snatched up the little priest, slung him a straddle on his shoulders, and went racing towards seaward as fast as his long legs could carry him. It was not until nearly two miles farther on that he set his small companion down. It had hardly been a dignified escape, in spite of the classic model of Anchises, that Father Brown's face only wore a broad grin. Well, said Flambeau, after an impatient silence, as they resumed their more conventional tramp through the streets on the edge of town where no outrage need be feared, I don't know what all this means, but I take it I may trust my own eyes that you never met the man you have so accurately described. I did meet him in a way, Brown said, biting his finger rather nervously. I did, really, and it was too dark to see him properly, because it was under that bandstand affair. But I'm afraid I didn't describe him so very accurately after all, for his pince-nez was broken under him, and the long gold pin wasn't stuck through his purple scarf, but through his heart. And I suppose, said the other in a low voice, that glass-eyed Guy had something to do with it? I had hoped he had only a little, answered Brown, in a rather troubled voice, and I may have been wrong in what I did. I acted on impulse, but I fear this business has deep roots and dark. They walked on through some streets in silence. The yellow lamps were beginning to be lit in the cold blue twilight, and they were evidently approaching the more central parts of town. Highly coloured bills announcing the glove fight between Nigger Ned and Malvoli were slapped about the walls. "'Well,' said Flambeau, "'I never murdered anyone, even in my criminal days, but I can almost sympathise with anyone doing it in such a dreary place. Of all God-forsaken dustbins of nature, I think the most heartbreaking are places like that bandstand, that were meant to be festive and are forlorn. I can fancy a morbid man feeling he must kill his rival in the solitude and irony of such a scene.' I remember once taking a tramp in your glorious Surrey hills, thinking of nothing but gorse and skylarks, when I came out on a vast circle of land, and over me lifted a vast voiceless structure, tier above tier of streets, as huge as a Roman amphitheatre, and as empty as a new letter-rack. A bird sailed in heaven over it. It was the grandstand at Epsom, and I felt that no one would ever be happy there again. "'It's odd you should mention Epsom,' said the priest. "'Do you remember what was called the Sutton Mystery? "'Because two suspected men, ice-cream men, I think, "'happened to live at Sutton? "'They were eventually released. "'A man was found strangled, it was said, "'on the downs round that part. "'As a fact, I know, from an Irish policeman "'who's a friend of mine, "'that he was found close up to the Epsom Grandstand, "'in fact, only hidden by one of the lower doors "'being pushed back.' "'That is queer,' assented Flambeau but it rather confirms my view that such pleasure-places look awfully lonely out of season, or the man wouldn't have been murdered there. I'm not so sure he began brown and stopped. Not so sure he was murdered, queried his companion. 
"'Not so sure he was murdered out of the season,' answered the little priest with simplicity. "'Don't you think there's something rather tricky about this solitude, Flambeau? "'Do you feel sure a wise murderer would always want the spot to be lonely?' It's very, very seldom a man is quite alone, and, short of that, the more alone he is, the more certain he is to be seen. No, I think there must be some other—why, here we are at the pavilion, or palace, or whatever they call it. They had emerged on a small square, brilliantly lighted, of which the principal building was gay with gilding, gaudy with posters, and flanked with two giant photographs of Malvoli and Nigger Ned. Hello, cried Flambeau in great surprise, as his clerical friends stumped straight up the broad steps. I didn't know pugilism was your latest hobby. Are you going to see the fight? I don't think there will be any fight, replied Father Brown. They passed rapidly through ante-rooms and inner rooms. They passed through the hall of combat itself, raised, roped, and padded with innumerable seats and boxes. And still the cleric did not look round or pause till he came to a clerk at a desk outside a door marked Committee. There he stopped and asked to see Lord Pooley. The attendant observed that his lordship was very busy, as the fight was coming on soon, but Father Brown had a good-tempered tedium of reiteration, for which the official mind is generally not prepared. In a few moments the rather baffled Flambeau found himself in the presence of a man who was still shouting directions to another man going out of the room. Be careful, you know, about the ropes after the fourth. Well, and what do you want, I wonder? Lord Pooley was a gentleman, and, like most of the few remaining to our race, was worried, especially about money. He was half grey and half flaxen, and he had the eyes of fever and a high-bridged frost-bitten nose. Only a word, said Father Brown, I've come to prevent a man being killed. Lord Pooley bounded off his chair as if a spring had flung him from it. "'I'm damned if I'll stand any more of this,' he cried, "'you and your committees and parsons and petitions. "'Weren't there parsons in the old days when they fought without gloves? "'Now they're fighting with the regulation gloves, "'and there's not the rag of a possibility of either of the boxers being killed.' "'I didn't mean either of the boxers,' said the little priest. "'Well, well, well,' said the nobleman, with a touch of frosty humour. "'Who's going to be killed? The referee?' "'I don't know who's going to be killed,' replied Father Brown, with a reflective stare. "'If I did, I shouldn't have to spoil your pleasure. "'I could simply get him to escape. "'I never could see anything wrong about prize-fights. "'As it is, I must ask you to announce that the fight is off for the present.' "'Anything else?' jeered the gentleman, with feverish eyes. And what do you say to the two thousand people who've come to see it? I say there will be one thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine of them left alive when they have seen it, said Father Brown. Lord Pooley looked at Flambeau. Is your friend mad? he asked. Far from it, was the reply. And look here, resumed Pooley in his restless way. It's worse than that. A whole pack of Italians have turned up to back Malvoli. Swarthy, savage fellows of some country, anyhow. You know what these Mediterranean races are like. If I send out word that it's off, we shall have Malvoli storming in here at the head of the whole Corsican clan. My lord, it's a matter of life and death, said the priest. Ring your bell, give your message, and see whether it is Malvoli who answers. The nobleman struck the bell on the table with an odd air of new curiosity. 
he said to the clerk, who appeared almost instantly in the doorway. I have a serious announcement to make to the audience shortly. Meanwhile, would you kindly tell the two champions that the fight will have to be put off? The clerk stared for some seconds as if at a demon, and vanished. What authority have you for what you say? asked Lord Pooley abruptly. Whom did you consult? I consulted a bandstand, said Father Brown, scratching his head. But no, I'm wrong. I consulted a book, too. I picked it up on a bookstall in London. Very cheap, too. He had taken out of his pocket a small, stout, leather-bound volume, and Flambeau, looking over his shoulder, could see that it was some book of old travels, and had a leaf turned down for reference. The only form in which voodoo, began Father Brown, reading aloud, in which what, inquired his lordship, in which voodoo, repeated the reader, almost with relish, is widely organised outside Jamaica itself, is in the form known as the monkey, or the god of the gongs, which is powerful in many parts of the two American continents, especially among half-breeds, many of whom look exactly like white men. It differs from most other forms of devil-worship and human sacrifice, in the fact that the blood is not shed formally on the altar, but by a sort of assassination among the crowd. The gongs beat with a deafening din as the doors of the shrine open, and the monkey god is revealed. Almost the whole congregation rivet ecstatic eyes on him, but after... The door of the room was flung open, and the fashionable negro stood framed in it, his eyeballs rolling, his silk hat still insolently tilted on his head. Ha! he cried, showing his apish teeth. What's this? Ha! Ha! You steal a coloured gentleman's prize. Prize is already. You think you just save that white Italian trash? The matter is only deferred, said the nobleman quietly. I will be with you to explain in a minute or two. Who you two? shouted Nigger Ned, beginning to storm. My name is Pooley, replied the other, with a creditable coolness. I am the organising secretary, and I advise you just now to leave the room. Who dis fellow? demanded the dark champion pointing to the priest disdainfully. "'My name is Brown,' was the reply, "'and I advise you just now to leave the country.' The prize-fighter stood glaring for a few seconds, and then, rather to the surprise of Flambeau and the others, strode out, sending the door to with a crash behind him. "'Well,' asked Father Brown, rubbing his dusty hair up, "'what do you think of Leonardo da Vinci, a beautiful Italian head?' "'Look here,' said Pooley, "'I've taken a considerable responsibility on your bare word. "'I think you ought to tell me more about this.' "'You're quite right, my lord,' answered Brown, "'and it won't take long to tell.' "'He put the little leather book in his overcoat pocket. "'I think we know all that this can tell us, "'but you shall look at it to see if I'm right. "'That negro who has just swaggered out "'is one of the most dangerous men on earth, "'for he has the brains of a European "'with the instincts of the cannibal.' He has turned what was clean, common-sense butchery among his fellow barbarians into a very modern and scientific secret society of assassins. He doesn't know I know it, nor, for the matter of that, that I can't prove it. There was a silence, and the little man went on. But if I want to murder somebody, will it really be the best plan to make sure I'm alone with him? Lord Pooley's eyes recovered their frosty twinkle as he looked at the little clergyman. He only said, if you want to murder somebody, I should advise it. Father Brown shook his head, like a murderer of much riper experience. 
So Flambeau said, he replied with a sigh, but consider, the more a man feels lonely, the less he can be sure he is alone. It must mean empty spaces around him, and they are just what make him obvious. Have you never seen one ploughman from the heights, or one shepherd from the valley? Have you never walked along a cliff and seen one man walking along the sands? Didn't you know when he's killed a crab, and wouldn't you have known if it had been a creditor? No, 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 for an intelligent murderer, such as you or I might be, it is an impossible plan to make sure that nobody is looking at you. But what other plan is there? There is only one, said the priest, to make sure that everybody is looking at something else. A man is throttled close by the big stand at Epsom. Anybody might have seen it done while the stand stood empty, any tramp under the hedges or motorist among the hills. But nobody would have seen it when the stand was crowded, and the whole ring roaring when the favourite was coming in first, or wasn't. The twisting of a neckcloth, the thrusting of a body behind a door, could be done in an instant, so long as it was that instant. It was the same, of course, he continued turning to Flambeau, with that poor fellow under the bandstand. He was dropped through the hole, it wasn't an accidental hole, just at some very dramatic moment of the entertainment, when the bow of some great violinist or the voice of some great singer opened or came to its climax. And, here, of course, when the knockout blow came, it would not be the only one. That is the little trick Nigger Ned has adopted for his old gong of gongs. By the way, Malvoli, Pooley began, Malvoli, said the priest, has nothing to do with it. I dare say he has some Italians with him, but our amiable friends are not Italians. They are octoroons and African half-bloods of various shades, but I fear we English think all foreigners are much the same, so long as they are dark and dirty. Also, he added with a smile, I fear the English decline to draw any fine distinction between the moral character produced by my religion and that which blooms out of voodoo. The blaze of the spring season had burst upon Seawood, littering its foreshore with famines and bathing-machines, with nomadic preachers and nigger minstrels, before the two friends saw it again, and long before the storm of pursuit after the strange secret society had died away. Almost on every hand the secret of their purpose perished with them. The man of the hotel was found drifting dead on the sea like so much seaweed, his right eye was closed in peace, but his left eye wide open and glistened like glass in the moon. Nigger Ned had been overtaken a mile or two away, and murdered three policemen with his closed left hand. The remaining officer was surprised, nay pained, and the negro got away. But this was enough to set all the English papers in a flame, and for a month or two the main purpose of the British Empire was to prevent the buck nigger who was so in both senses, escaping by any English port. Persons of a figure remotely reconcilable with his were subjected to quite extraordinary inquisitions, made to scrub their faces before going on board ship, as if each white complexion were made up like a mask of grease-paint. Every negro in England was put under special regulations and made to report himself. The outgoing ships would no more have taken a nigger than a basilisk for people had found out how fearful and vast and silent was the force of the savage secret society. And by the time Flambeau and Father Brown were leaning on the parade parapet in April, the black man meant in England almost what he once meant in Scotland. He must still be in England, observed Flambeau, and horridly well hidden too. They must have found him at the ports if he'd only whitened his face. You see, he's a really clever man, said Father Brown apologetically. 
and I'm sure he wouldn't whiten his face. Well, but what would he do? I think, said Father Brown, he would blacken his face. Flambeau, leaning motionless on the parapet, laughed and said, My dear fellow, Father Brown, also leaning motionless on the parapet, moved one finger for an instant into the direction of the soot-masked niggers singing on the sands. End of chapter The Wisdom of Father Brown by G. K. Chesterton Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton Chapter 10 The Salad of Colonel Cray Father Brown was walking home from Mass on a white, weird morning when the mists were slowly lifting, one of those mornings when the very element of light appears as something mysterious and new. The scattered trees outline themselves more and more out of the vapour, as if they were first drawn in grey chalk and then in charcoal. At yet more distant intervals appeared the houses upon the broken fringe of the suburb. Their outlines became clearer and clearer, until he recognised many in which he had had chance acquaintances, and many more the names of whose owners he knew. But all the windows and doors were sealed. None of the people were of the sort that would be up at such a time, or still less on such an errand. But as he passed under the shadow of one handsome villa with verandas and wide, ornate gardens, he heard a noise that made him almost involuntarily stop. It was the unmistakable noise of a pistol or carbine or some light firearm discharged. But it was not this that puzzled him most. The first full noise was immediately followed by a series of fainter noises, as he counted them about six. He supposed it must be the echo, but the odd thing was that the echo was not in the least like the original sound. It was not like anything else that he could think of. The three things nearest to it seemed to be the noise made by siphons of soda water, one of the many noises made by an animal, and the noise made by a person attempting to conceal laughter, none of which seemed to make much sense. Father Brown was made of two men. There was a man of action, who was as modest as a primrose and as punctual as a clock, who went his small round of duties and never dreamed of altering it. There was also a man of reflection, who was much simpler but much stronger, who could not easily be stopped, whose thought was always, in the only intelligent sense of the word, free thought. He could not help even unconsciously asking himself all the questions that there were to be asked, and answering as many of them as he could. All that went on like his breathing or circulation, but he never consciously carried his actions outside the sphere of his own duty, and in this case the two attitudes were aptly tested. He was just about to resume his trudge in the twilight, telling himself it was no affair of his, instinctively twisting and untwisting twenty theories about what the odd noises might mean. Then the grey skyline brightened into silver, and in the broadening light he realised that he had been to the house which belonged to an Anglo-Indian major named Putnam, and that the major had a native cook from Malta who was of his communion. He also began to remember that pistol shots are sometimes serious things, accompanied with consequences with which he was legitimately concerned. He turned back and went in at the garden gate, making for the front door. 
Halfway down one side of the house stood out a projection like a very low shed. It was, as he afterwards discovered, a large dustbin. Round the corner of this came a figure, at first a mere shadow in the haze, apparently bending and peering about. Then, coming nearer, it solidified into a figure that was, indeed, rather unusually solid. Major Putnam was a bald-headed, bull-necked man, short and very broad, with one of those rather apoplectic faces that are produced by a prolonged attempt to combine the Oriental climate with the Occidental luxuries. But the face was a good-humoured one, and, even now, though evidently puzzled and inquisitive, wore a kind of innocent grin. He had a large palm-leaf hat on the back of his head, suggesting a halo that was by no means appropriate to the face, but otherwise he was clad only in a very vivid suit of striped scarlet and yellow pyjamas, which, although glowing enough to behold, must have been on a fresh morning pretty chilly to wear. He had evidently come out of his house in a hurry, and the priest was not surprised when he called out without further ceremony, "'Did you hear that noise?' "'Yes,' answered Father Brown. "'I thought I'd better look in, in case anything was the matter.' The Major looked at him rather queerly with his good-humoured gooseberry eyes. "'What do you think the noise was?' he asked. "'Sounded like a gun or something,' replied the other with some hesitation. "'But it seemed to have a singular sort of echo.' The Major was still looking at him quietly, but with protruding eyes, when the door was flung open, releasing a flood of gaslight on the face of the fading mist and another figure in pyjamas sprang or tumbled out into the garden. The figure was much longer, leaner, and more athletic. The pyjamas, though equally tropical, were comparatively tasteful, being of white with a light lemon-yellow stripe. The man was haggard, but handsome, more sunburned than the other. He had an aquiline profile, and rather deep sunken eyes, and a slight air of oddity arising from the combination of coal-black hair with a much lighter moustache. All this Father Brown absorbed in detail more at leisure. For the moment he only saw one thing about the man, which was the revolver in his hand. "'Gray!' exclaimed the Major, staring at him. "'Did you fire that shot?' "'Yes, I did,' retorted the black-haired gentleman hotly. "'And so would you in my place, if you were chased everywhere by devils and nearly—' The Major seemed to intervene rather hurriedly. "'This is my friend, Father Brown,' he said, and then to Brown, "'and I—' "'Don't know whether you've met Colonel Cray of the Royal Artillery?' "'I've heard of him, of course,' said the priest innocently. "'Did you—did you hit anything?' "'I thought so,' answered Cray with gravity. "'Did he—' asked Major Putnam in a loud voice. "'Did he fall or cry out or anything?' Colonel Cray was regarding his host with a strange and steady stare. "'I'll tell you exactly what he did,' he said. "'He sneezed.' Father Brown's hand went halfway to his head with the gesture of a man remembering somebody's name. He knew now what it was that was neither soda-water nor the snorting of a dog. "'Well,' ejaculated the staring Major, "'I never heard before that a service revolver was a thing to be sneezed at.' "'Nor I,' said Father Brown, faintly. "'It's lucky you didn't turn your artillery on him, or you might have given him quite a bad cold.' Then, after a bewildered pause, he said, "'Was it a burglar?' "'Let's go inside,' said Major Putnam rather sharply, and led the way into his house. The interior exhibited a paradox often to be marked in such morning hours. 
that the room seemed brighter than the sky outside, even after the Major had turned off the one gaslight in the front hall. Father Brown was surprised to see the whole dining-table set out as for a festive meal, with napkins in their rings and wine-glasses of some six unnecessary shapes set beside every plate. It was common enough at that time of the morning to find the remains of a banquet overnight, but to find it freshly spread so early was unusual. While he stood wavering in the hall, Major Putnam rushed past him and sent a raging eye over the whole oblong of the tablecloth. At last he spoke, spluttering, "'All the silver gone,' he gasped. "'Fish-knives and forks gone. Old cruet-stand gone. Even the old silver-cream jug gone. "'And now, Father Brown, I'm ready to answer your question of whether it was a burglar.' "'They're simply a blind,' said Cray stubbornly. "'I know better than you why people persecute this house. I know better than you why—' The Major patted him on the shoulder with a gesture almost peculiar to the soothing of a sick child, and said, "'It was a burglar. Obviously it was a burglar.' "'A burglar with a bad cold,' observed Father Brown. "'That might assist you to trace him in the neighbourhood.' The Major shook his head in a sombre manner. "'He must be far beyond trace now, I fear,' he said. Then, as the restless man with the revolver turned again towards the door in the garden, he added, in a husky, confidential voice, "'I doubt whether I should send for the police, for fear my friend here has been a little too free with his bullets, and got on the wrong side of the law. He's lived in very wild places, and, to be frank with you, I think he sometimes fancies things.' "'I think you once told me,' said Brown, "'that he believes some Indian secret society is pursuing him.' Major Putnam nodded but at the same time shrugged his shoulders. "'I suppose we'd better follow him outside,' he said. "'I don't want any more, shall we say, sneezing.' They passed out into the morning light, which was now even tinged with sunshine, and saw Cray's tall figure bent almost double, minutely examining the condition of gravel and grass. While the Major strolled unobtrusively towards him, the priest took an equally indolent turn— which took him round the next corner of the house to within a yard or two of the projecting dustbin. He stood regarding this dismal object for some minute and a half. Then he stepped towards it, lifted the lid, and put his head inside. Dust and other discolouring matter shook upwards as he did so. But Father Brown never observed his own appearance, whatever else he observed. He remained thus for a measurable period, as if engaged in some mysterious prayers. Then he came out again with some ashes on his hair, and walked unconcernedly away. By the time he came round to the garden door again, he found a group there which seemed to roll away morbidities, as the sunlight had already rolled away the mists. It was in no way rationally reassuring, it was simply broadly comic, like a cluster of Dickens' characters. Major Putnam had managed to slip inside and plunge into a proper shirt and trousers, with a crimson cummerbund and a light square jacket over all. Thus normally set off, his red, festive face seemed bursting with a commonplace cordiality. He was indeed emphatic, but then he was talking to his cook, the swarthy son of Malta, whose lean, yellow, and rather careworn face contrasted quaintly with his snow-white cap and costume. The cook might well be careworn, for cookery was the Major's hobby. He was one of those amateurs who always know more than the professional. The only other person he even admitted to be a judge of an omelette was his friend Cray. 
and as Brown remembered this, he turned to look for the other officer. In the new presence of daylight and people clothed and in their right mind, the sight of him was rather a shock. The taller and more elegant man was still in his night-garb, with tousled black hair, and now crawling about the garden on his hands and knees, still looking for traces of the burglar, and, now and again, to all appearances, striking the ground with his hand in anger at not finding him. Seeing him thus quadrupedal in the grass, the priest raised his eyebrows rather sadly, and for the first time guessed that fancies things might be a euphemism. The third item in the group of the cook and the epicure was also known to Father Brown. It was Audrey Watson, the major's ward and housekeeper, and at this moment, to judge by her apron, tucked-up sleeves and resolute manner, much more the housekeeper than the ward. "'It serves you right,' she was saying. "'I always told you not to have that old-fashioned cruet stand.' "'I prefer it,' said Putnam placably. "'I'm old-fashioned myself, and the things keep together.' "'And vanish together, as you see,' she retorted. "'Well, if you're not going to bother about the burglar, "'I shouldn't bother about the lunch. "'It's Sunday, and we can't send for vinegar and all that in the town. "'And you Indian gentlemen can't enjoy what you call a dinner "'without a lot of hot things.' I wish to goodness now you hadn't asked Cousin Oliver to take me to the musical service. It isn't over till half-past twelve, and the Colonel has to leave by then. I don't believe you men can manage alone. Oh, yes, we can, my dear, said the Major, looking at her very amiably. Marco has all the sources, and we've often done ourselves well in very rough places, as you might know by now. And it's time you had a treat, Audrey. You mustn't be a housekeeper every hour of the day and I know you want to hear the music. I want to go to church, she said, with rather severe eyes. She was one of those handsome women who will always be handsome, because the beauty is not in an air or a tint, but in the very structure of the head and features. But though she was not yet middle-aged, and her auburn hair was of a Titianesque fullness in form and colour, there was a look in her mouth and around her eyes which suggested that some sorrows wasted her, as winds waste at least the edges of a Greek temple. For, indeed, the little domestic difficulty of which she was now speaking so decisively was rather comic than tragic. Father Brown gathered from the course of the conversation that Cray, the other gourmet, had to leave before the usual lunchtime, but that Putnam, his host, not to be done out of a final feast with an old crony, had arranged for a special déjeuner to be set out and consumed in the course of the morning while Audrey and other graver persons were at morning service. She was going there under the escort of a relative and old friend of hers, Dr. Oliver Oman, who, though a scientific man of a somewhat bitter type, was enthusiastic for music, and would go even to church to get it. There was nothing in all this that could conceivably concern the tragedy in Miss Watson's face, and by a half-conscious instinct Father Brown turned again to the seeming lunatic grubbing about in the grass. When he strolled across to him, the black, unbrushed head was lifted abruptly, as if in some surprise at his continued presence. And indeed Father Brown, for reasons best known to himself, had lingered much longer than politeness required, or even, in the ordinary sense, permitted. "'Well,' cried Cray, with wild eyes, "'I suppose you think I'm mad like the rest.' "'I have considered the thesis,' answered the little man, composedly, "'and I incline to think you are not.' "'What do you mean?' snapped Cray, quite savagely. 
Real madmen, explained Father Brown, always encourage their own morbidity. They never strive against it. But you are trying to find traces of the burglar. Even when there aren't any, you are struggling against it. You want what no madman ever wants. And what is that? You want to be proved wrong, said Father Brown. During the last words, Cray had sprung or staggered to his feet and was regarding the cleric with agitated eyes. By hell, but that is a true word, he cried. They're all at me here that the fellow was only after the silver, as if I shouldn't be only too pleased to think so. She's been at me, and he tossed his tousled black head towards Audrey. But the other had no need of the direction. She's been at me today about how cruel I was to shoot a poor harmless housebreaker, and how I have the devil in me against poor harmless natives. But I was a good-natured man once, as good-natured as Putnam. After a pause, he said, Look here, I've never seen you before, but you shall judge of the whole story. Old Putnam and I were friends in the same mess, but, owing to some accidents on the Afghan border, I got my command much sooner than most men. Only we were both invalided home for a bit. I was engaged to Audrey out there, and we all travelled back together. But on the journey back things happened, curious things. The result of them was that Putnam wants it broken off, and even Audrey keeps it hanging on, and I know what they mean. I know what they think I am. So do you. Well, these are the facts. The last day we were in an Indian city, I asked Putnam if I could get some Trichinopoly cigars. He directed me to a little place opposite his lodgings. I've since found he was quite right, but opposite is a dangerous word when one decent house stands opposite five or six squalid ones, and I must have mistaken the door. It opened with difficulty, and then only on darkness. But as I turned back, the door behind me sank back and settled into its place with a noise of innumerable bolts. There was nothing to do but to walk forward, which I did through passage after passage, pitch dark. Then I came to a flight of steps, and then to a blind door, secured by a latch of elaborate eastern ironwork, which I could only trace by touch, but which I loosened at last. I came out again upon gloom, which was half turned into a greenish twilight by a multitude of small but steady lamps below. They showed merely the feet or fringes of some huge and empty architecture. Just in front of me was something that looked like a mountain. I confess I nearly fell on the great stone platform on which I emerged to realise that it was an idol, and worst of all, an idol with its back to me. It was hardly half human, I guess, to judge by the small, squat head, and still more by a thing like a tail or extra limb turned up behind and pointing like a loathsome large finger at some symbol graven in the centre of the vast stone back. I had begun in the dim light to guess at the hieroglyphic, not without horror, when a more horrible thing happened. A door opened silently in the temple wall behind me, and a man came out, with a brown face and a black coat. He had a carved smile on his face of copper flesh and ivory teeth, but I think the most hateful thing about him was that he was in European dress. I was prepared, I think, for shrouded priests or naked fakirs, but this seemed to say that the devilry was over all the earth as indeed I found it to be. "'If you had only seen the monkey's feet,' he said, smiling steadily and without other preface, "'we should have been very gentle. You would have only been tortured and die. "'If you had seen the monkey's face, still we should be very moderate, very tolerant. "'You would only be tortured and live.' 
but as you have seen the monkey's tail, we must pronounce the worst sentence, which is, Go free. When he said the words, I heard the elaborate iron latch with which I had struggled automatically unlock itself, and then, far down the dark passages I had passed, I heard the heavy street door shifting its own bolts backwards. It is vain to ask for mercy. You must go free, said the smiling man. Henceforth a hair shall slay you like a sword, and a breath shall bite you like an adder. Weapons shall come against you out of nowhere, and you shall die many times. And with that he swallowed once more in the wall behind, and I went out into the street. Cray paused, and Father Brown unaffectedly sat down on the lawn, and began to pick daisies. Then the soldier continued, Putnam, of course, with his jolly common sense, pooh-poohed all my fears, and, from that time, dates his doubt of my mental balance. Well, I'll simply tell you, in the fewest words, the three things that have happened since, and you shall judge which of us is right. The first happened in an Indian village on the edge of the jungle, but hundreds of miles from the temple or town or types of tribes and customs where the curse had been put on me. I woke in black midnight, and lay thinking of nothing in particular, when I felt a faint tickling thing, like a thread or a hair, trailed across my throat. I shrank back out of its way, and could not help thinking of the words in the temple, but when I got up and sought lights in a mirror, the line across my neck was a line of blood. The second happened in a lodging in Port Side, later, on our journey home together. It was a jumble of tavern and curiosity shop, and though there was nothing there remotely suggesting the cult of the monkey, it is, of course, possible that some of its images or talismans were in such a place. Its curse was there, anyhow. I woke again in the dark with a sensation that could not be put in colder or more literal words than that a breath bit like an adder. Existence was an agony of extinction. I dashed my head against walls until I dashed it against a window, and fell rather than jumped into the garden below. Putnam, poor fellow, who had called the other thing a chance scratch, was bound to take seriously the fact of finding me half insensible on the grass at dawn. But I fear it was my mental state he took seriously, and not my story. The third happened in Malta. We were in a fortress there, and, as it happened, our bedrooms overlooked the open sea, which almost came up to our window-sills, save for a flat, white, outer wall as bare as the sea. I woke up again, but it was not dark. There was a full moon as I walked to the window. I could have seen a bird on the bare battlement, or a sail on the horizon. What I did see was a sort of stick or branch circling, self-supported, in the empty sky. It flew straight in at my window, and smashed the lamp beside the pillow I had just quitted. It was one of those queer-shaped war-clubs some eastern tribes use, but it had come from no human hand. Father Brown threw away a daisy-chain he was making, and rose with a wistful look. "'Has Major Putnam,' he asked, "'got any eastern curios, idols, weapons, and so on, from which one might get a hint?' "'Plenty of those, though not much use, I fear,' replied Cray. "'But by all means, come into his study.' As they entered, they passed Miss Watson buttoning her gloves for church, and heard the voice of Putnam downstairs, still giving a lecture on cookery to the cook. 
in the major study and den of curios they came suddenly on a third party silk-hatted and dressed for the street who was poring over an open book on the smoking-table a book which he dropped rather guiltily and turned cray introduced him civilly enough as dr oman but he showed such disfavour in his very face that brown guessed the two men whether audrey knew it or not were rivals nor was the priest wholly unsympathetic with the prejudice dr oman was a very well-dressed gentleman indeed well-featured although almost dark enough for an asiatic but father brown had to tell himself sharply that one should be in charity even with those who wax their pointed beards who have small gloved hands and who speak with perfectly modulated voices cray seemed to find something specially irritating in the small prayer-book in oman's dark-gloved hand i didn't know that was in your line he said rather rudely oman laughed mildly but without offence this is more so i know he said laying his hand on the big book he had dropped a dictionary of drugs and such things but it's rather too large to take to church then he closed the larger book and there seemed again the faintest touch of hurry and embarrassment i suppose said the priest who seemed anxious to change the subject all these spears and things are from india from everywhere answered the doctor putnam is an old soldier and has been in mexico and australia and the cannibal islands for all i know i hope it was not in the cannibal islands said brown that he learnt the art of cookery and he ran his eyes over the stew-pots and other strange utensils on the wall at this moment the jolly subject of their conversation thrust his laughing lobsterish face into the room come along cray he cried your lunch is just coming in and the bells are ringing for those who want to go to church cray slipped upstairs to change dr oman and miss watson betook themselves solemnly down the street with a string of other church-goers but father brown noticed that the doctor twice looked back and scrutinized the house and even came back to the corner of the street to look at it again the priest looked puzzled he can't have been at the dustbin he muttered not in those clothes or was he here earlier to-day father brown touching other people was as sensitive as a barometer but to-day he seemed about as sensitive as a rhinoceros by no social law rigid or implied could he be supposed to linger round the lunch of the anglo-indian friends but he lingered covering his position with torrents of amusing but quite needless conversation he was the more puzzling because he did not seem to want any lunch as one after another of the most exquisitely balanced kedgeree of curries accompanied with their appropriate vintages were laid before the other two he only repeated that it was one of his fast days and munched a piece of bread and sipped and then left untasted a tumbler of cold water his talk however was exuberant i'll tell you what i'll do for you he cried i'll mix you a salad i can't eat it but i'll mix it like an angel you've got a lettuce there unfortunately it's the only thing we have got answered the good-humoured major you must remember that mustard vinegar oil and so on vanished with the cruet and the burglar i know replied brown rather vaguely that's what i've always been afraid would happen that's why i always carry a cruet stand about with me i'm so fond of salads and to the amazement of the two men he took a pepper-pot out of his waistcoat pocket and put it on the table i wonder why the burglar wanted mustard too he went on taking a mustard pot from another pocket a mustard plaster i suppose and vinegar 
producing that condiment. Haven't I heard something about vinegar and brown paper? As for oil, which I think I put in my left, his garrulity was an instant arrested, for, lifting his eyes, he saw what no one else saw, the black figure of Dr. Oman standing on the sunlit lawn and looking steadily into the room. Before he could quite recover himself, Cray had cloven in. "'You're an astounding card,' he said, staring. "'I shall come and hear your sermons, if they're as amusing as your manners.' His voice changed a little, and he leaned back in his chair. "'Oh, there are sermons in a cruet stand, too,' said Father Brown, quite gravely. "'Have you heard of faith like a grain of mustard seed, or charity that anoints with oil? "'And as for vinegar, can any soldiers forget that solitary soldier who, when the sun was darkened, Colonel Cray leaned forward a little and clutched the tablecloth. Father Brown, who was making the salad, tipped two spoonfuls of the mustard into the tumbler of water beside him, stood up and said in a new, loud and sudden voice, "'Drink that!' At the same moment the motionless doctor in the garden came running, and bursting open a window cried, "'Am I wanted? Has he been poisoned?' "'Pretty near,' said Brown, with the shadow of a smile for the emetic had very suddenly taken effect, and Cray lay in a deck-chair, gasping as for life, but alive. Major Putnam had sprung up, his purple face mottled. A crime, he cried hoarsely, I'll go for the police. The priest could hear him dragging down his palm-leaf hat from the peg and tumbling out of the front door. He heard the garden gate slam. But he only stood looking at Cray, and after a silence said quietly, I shall not talk to you much, but I will tell you what you want to know. There is no curse on you. The temple of the monkey was either a coincidence or part of the trick. The trick was the trick of a white man. There is only one weapon that will bring blood with that mere feathery touch, a razor held by a white man. There is one way of making a common room full of invisible overpowering poison turning on the gas, the crime of a white man. And there is only one kind of club that can be thrown out of a window, turn in mid-air, and come back to the window next to it. The Australian boomerang. You'll see some of them in the Major's study. With that he went outside and spoke for a moment to the doctor. The moment after, Audrey Watson came rushing into the house and fell on her knees beside Cray's chair. He could not hear what they said to each other, but their faces moved with amazement, not unhappiness. The doctor and the priest walked slowly towards the garden gate. "'I suppose the Major was in love with her, too,' he said with a sigh. And when the other nodded, observed, "'You were very generous, Doctor. You did a fine thing. But what made you suspect?' "'A very small thing,' said a man. "'But it kept me restless in church till I came back to see that all was well.' That book on his table was a work on poisons, and was put down open at the place where it stated that a certain Indian poison, though deadly and difficult to trace, was particularly easily reversible by the use of the commonest emetics. I suppose he read that at the last moment, and remembered that there were emetics in the cruet stand, said Father Brown, exactly. He threw the cruet in the dustbin, where I found it, along with other silver, for the sake of a burglary blind. But if you took that pepper-pot I put on the table, you'll see a small hole. That's where Cray's bullet struck, shaking up the pepper and making the criminal sneeze. 
There was a silence. Then Dr. Aman said grimly, "'The Major is a long time looking for the police.' "'Or the police in looking for the Major,' said the priest. "'Well, good-bye.' End of chapter. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.